Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories. I have a blog that you might want to check out, and that can be found at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. And if you'd like to reach out to me, please do so. You can shoot me an email at rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right. Today is March 22nd, 2022. And today I'm going to talk about something that I mentioned a few episodes ago. I did kind of a current events update with some articles that had been published and some NCAA propaganda on its website to talk about this cozy relationship between the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and uh, sports media and how narratives are set really within a narrow band defined largely by the institutional interests, not by athlete interests. And I talk a little bit about sports betting. At the very end of that episode, I mentioned that there had been some articles on sports betting. And there was an opinion piece in Sportico that came out today. And it was written by David Levy, who was the chairman of Genius Sports. And Genius Sports is a massive sports data collection company that gets live statistics and other data on a player-specific basis, and it takes that data, it consolidates it, and in real time, it sends it to sports betting companies. And those sports gambling outfits benefit enormously, and they'll pay top dollar to have access to that data. And how does Genius get all of this data? Well, it purchases it from the leagues that believe they have ownership interest in that data. And I'm going to talk more about some of the legal issues here in a second. But long story short here, these kinds of companies are in the business of selling player data to be used in the gambling space. And they have contracts with uh, the the professional leagues, and they're trying to get into the market at the college level. And I'm going to talk more about that. But I want to land ultimately with this op-ed that's titled, The New Era of March Madness, Back and Better Than Ever. But to get to this op-ed and to put it into context, I need to provide some history on sports betting in college sports and the NCAA's longstanding and historic and militant opposition to any association with any sports betting interest. That was a very bright line that they drew in the sand and they protected that line, at least at the propaganda level. And what's happening with sports betting right now is a perfect example of what I call the values normalization process. And the NCAA draws these lines in the sand, as they did with amateurism and the collegiate model and with name, image, and likeness and with transfers, all these issues, cost of attendance scholarships, they drew these very public 
lines on all of those issues and said, over our dead body. Well, we compromised those values. And then whether they were forced to or they chose to, the NCAA and in-system stakeholder beneficiaries just kind of wiped away that line. And now it doesn't exist. And they won't acknowledge that it ever existed. And that is exactly what's happening with betting on college sports right now and bringing the, the gambling market into the NCAA Power 5 big-time college sports business model. Why would they want to do that? Because they can monetize their data and associate with all these companies that are in the gambling business. And Genius Sports is in the gambling business. And they can make, they, meaning the NCAA, the Power 5, these institutions, they can make billions and billions of dollars. This is another great untapped revenue source. This is like finding the world's largest oil reserve somewhere in the middle of the continental United States and a mad scramble to exploit that resource. The same thing is happening now with sports betting. It is a largely unexplored frontier that has enormous potential commercial value. And I want to talk about some of the ways that the NCAA has propagandized the normalization of sports betting in college sports and some of the tactics that it's using, I believe, to try to gain public support for that transition. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when and how. And I think we're seeing the early stages of the how, and I think the when's going to be sooner rather than later. And I think what we're seeing during this NCAA tournament is the NCAA and the Power Five and the institutional interests and all of their compatriots out in the sports media and their corporate partners, just like Genius Sports, laying the foundation for that normalization. And some of the tactics that the uh, in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are using are very clever and just cynical as hell because they're wrapping up this normalization process around themes that are difficult to criticize. They're not being forced to sports betting, kicking and screaming. This is a purely voluntary decision. This is a choice, a values choice by the NCAA, and they have to package it in a way that will cover their tracks, cover all those lines in the sand that they've been drawing for decades on sports betting. And I'm going to talk more specifically about that as I go through some some articles and some documents and some history to explain how we got from there to here. And of course, we all know that betting on college sports is nothing new. And there is a tawdry history there with sports betting and point shaving and all that stuff. In fact, uh, and I discussed this in some of my prior episodes on how the NCAA gained its regulatory authority, but Walter Byers in 1951-52 opened that very first infractions and enforcement case that he was so proud of and he talked about in his 1995 book on sportsmanlike conduct. And that involved a point shaving scandal with the University of Kentucky basketball team, Adolph Rupp's basketball team. And there were some other schools, I think West Point and the City College of New York that got uh, brought into that. But that was really the first time that the NCAA stared down a member institution and said, you have violated one of our principles, one of our values, and we're going to take action. And the, the membership 
I think, supported the NCAA taking some bold action. And then Kentucky just kind of caved and agreed to a one-year ban. And that really was an important milestone in the evolution of the NCAA's regulatory authority, particularly with respect to infractions and enforcement. But this kind of activity, sports betting and the corruption that it spawns, is nothing new in college sports. And of course, we all participate in March Madness betting pools, even people who've never watched a college basketball game. They'll jump into a pool and all of a sudden they're, they're college basketball fans. I want to talk a little bit more about that as well. But gambling on college sports is an American tradition. And you have grandmothers and grandfathers and police officers and judges and clergy members all throwing down some mad money in March Madness pools. Although if you're a college coach, you better be careful. Rick Neuheisel, the former UCLA football coach, I don't know when this was, I don't know, a number of years ago, he got nailed in a betting scandal because he was outed for having participated in a pretty high stakes NCAA March Madness pool. And I think he was in for like 12 grand. And so he got, I think he got fired for that, if I'm not mistaken. So look, betting's nothing new to college sports. It's nothing new to the NCAA. And up until about 2018, the NCAA has never missed an opportunity to jump on its soapbox and proclaim to the world its amateur purity because it will have no affiliation with any person or entity that has anything to do with betting on college sports. And that 2018 date's important because there, there was a U.S. Supreme Court case relating to betting and a federal law that I'm going to talk about here in a second. But prior to 2018, here's how the NCAA articulated its position on gambling, and they call it sports wagering. NCAA rules prohibit participation in sports wagering activities and from providing information to individuals involved in or associated with any type of sports wagering activities concerning intercollegiate, amateur, or professional athletics competition. Sports wagering has the potential to undermine the integrity of sports contests and jeopardize the well-being of student-athletes and the intercollegiate athletics community. It also demeans the competition and competitors alike by spreading a message that is contrary to the purpose and meaning of sport, and they put sport in quotations. Sports competition should be appreciated for the inherent benefits related to participation of student athletes, coaches, and institutions in fair contests, not the amount of money wagered on the outcome of the competition. But the very beginning of that, they don't want anything to do with sports wagering, and they don't want to be involved in any relationship in which they provide information to individuals involved in or a associated with any type of sports wagering activities. And in 2018, the NCAA did a contract with Genius Sports, whose central business purpose is to acquire data for sports betting purposes and then to sell it to third parties. That contract is in direct conflict with the language that I just read you. And I guess I should also point out that the NCAA contends that this contract with Genius Sports does not permit Genius to take whatever data it gets from the NCAA for sports betting purposes. But we don't have that contract. We don't know. We're taking that at face value. And I'm going to talk about how the NCAA sort of softened its 
position in very subtle ways on sports betting, but it still hasn't let go of the propaganda. In fact, in July of 2020, in the heat of the NCAA Power Five's attempt to get all these federal protections and immunities through the Senate that would have essentially ended the athletes' rights movement, there was a hearing on July 22, 2020, in the Judiciary Committee, and it was titled Protecting the Integrity of College Sports. And the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee at that time was Lindsey Graham, a Republican from South Carolina, and he's a piece of work. But he went on and on in his opening statement about the integrity of college sports, and that hearing had two components to it. The first was on the name, image, and likeness issue. And the reason that this hearing was in judiciary was because judiciary has jurisdiction over antitrust issues. And the NCAA Power Five were asking for an antitrust exemption. They pulled in the, a, a second component of this hearing on sports betting. And I think part of that was to provide cover for the fact that the, the antitrust immunity was really the reason that that committee was holding a hearing. So you had a representative, a woman named Heather Likes, who is the athletics director at the University of Pittsburgh. And I've analyzed that hearing in judiciary. I wrote a couple of blog posts on it, and then I've talked a little bit about it in my podcast. And I never even mentioned the second component, the sports wagering issue, because it was so weak. The, that panel only sat for 25 minutes, and the questions were perfunctory. But what's important is that Ms. Likes was making an argument that Congress should step in and simply ban sports betting in college sports. And Likes was just chock full of NCAA propaganda. See, she says, the introduction of legal wagering on intercollegiate athletics will have a corrosive and detrimental impact on student athletes and the general student body alike. Gambling creates pressures and temptations that should not exist. And then she goes on to say, while currently a spectator's pride and team spirit might hinge on a win or loss, if sports betting is permitted, one's livelihood could depend on the outcome of a Saturday afternoon game. And then she, she broadened her concern to the general student body. She says the general student body will not be immune to the detrimental effects of legal gambling on college sports. It is not unreasonable to foresee students gambling away financial aid or work-study money on the big game. And it likes seems to believe that a federal law will stop all that gambling, not acknowledging the fact that the illegal gambling market in the United States, in states that don't allow gambling, is estimated at about $50 billion a year. And a substantial percentage of that, I think 30 to 40%, is estimated to, to be in the college sports betting market. So I don't, I don't think that we've got a new problem if we're worried about college students gambling away their financial aid and their work-study money. But uh, I need to talk just a little bit about some of the legal issues relating to college sports betting that have influenced the evolution of, of uh, the discussions on that. And, and I think we're where we are right now. In uh, 1992, Congress passed the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act. And the purpose of the law was to basically restrict gambling on sports, both professional and college. And it prohibited any government entity, including states, from sponsoring, operating, advertising, promoting, licensing, and or authorizing by law any wagering scheme on amateur or professional team games. So this is about the, the team gambling. So that this law was prohibiting states from permitting people to, to bet on their favorite team. 
And the public policy behind that law was very similar to all the propaganda that NCAA has been putting out for decades on the integrity of the game. And the professional sports leagues, I think, agreed with that. And all of those interests were in support of this law, PASPA. PASPA, I'm going to refer to it as that. So for states that already had sports betting, team betting, I think they were allowed to continue. So Nevada, for example, was allowed to continue under their existing laws. I think there were maybe four states who had the exemption. So 46 states were governed by PASPA. And one of those states covered by PASPA was New Jersey. And in uh, 2011, I guess it was, the state of New Jersey amended their constitution to permit wagering on team games in casinos in Atlantic City. That amendment was a clear violation of PASPA. And New Jersey didn't dispute that. They were saying, though, that the federal government didn't have the authority to tell states what to do under a principle called commandeering. And it's uh, a novel theory. It's related to preemption that I've talked so much about and the federal government's authority to basically remove states from the regulatory field in a given area if the federal interest trumps the state interest. So commandeering basically is a question of the allocation of power between federal and state governments. And then the New Jersey legislature did some tinkering around with a law that was designed to make it, I think, better positioned to challenge the PASPA under this commandeering theory. And in 2014, the NCAA and four professional sports leagues, including the NBA, they sued the state of New Jersey. So they first named Chris Christie as the governor. He was a proper party defendant there. And then the litigation lasted a while, and a new governor, a guy named Murphy, took over. So Murphy was substituted for Christie, and the case is called Murphy versus NCAA. And in that lawsuit, the NCAA and all these leagues were making all of these values-based arguments, integrity, integrity, integrity. The state of New Jersey responded saying, you don't have the authority to tell us what to do. And this is a state issue, not a federal issue. And that case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court agreed with the state of New Jersey and declared PASPA unconstitutional because it, quote unquote, commandeered the state of New Jersey to to do what the federal government was telling it to do. It usurped the state government's authority to regulate and legislate. And the Supreme Court issued its opinion in that case in 2018. And that's why that date, 2018, is so important because that's when the NCAA began to very quietly shift its messaging. It did that deal with Genius Sports. And as I'm going to explain here in a little bit, it started this process of normalization and permitting these encroachments on the line in the sand that they had drawn for decades, that gambling was bad news and the NCAA wasn't going to have anything to do with it or any institution or person that had any involvement in that business. And I want to make an observation about this particular litigation because this was not a case where the NCAA was hauled into court under antitrust laws by a bunch of greedy athletes and the NCAA was facing besieging and frivolous litigation, even if that litigation resulted in a unanimous Supreme Court decision against the NCAA. This was the NCAA and the NCAA Board of Governors who had the exclusive jurisdiction under the NCAA Constitution at the time to initiate litigation. Those people decided 
decided to file this lawsuit, and they did it in order to pound their chests for public preening to make the public believe that the NCAA was standing behind its values. That case really came to bite the NCAA in the butt. And I'm not going to get into all the details, but the NCAA and the uh, professional leagues sought an injunction to prevent this law from going into effect in New Jersey. And the district court required the NCAA and the sports leagues to post a bond. If you're going to, if you're going to get an injunction that harms the business interests of the person who's subject to the injunction, a court can require a bond that in the event that the injunction is in valid. That money then goes for basically their lost business opportunities. And the NCAA got the injunction initially, and then it was overturned. And on the back side of that, the state of New Jersey said that the actual damages that they suffered because of that injunction were a hell of a lot more than the cost of that bond. And for a while there, it looked like the NCAA might have to pony up a, a, a nice big check to the state of New Jersey because of their overreach. I think that issue was recently settled, very recently settled. But the NCAA just marched right into court and put at risk NCAA assets to pound its chest for public preening. And now on the back side of that, what does it do? It turns those values that were the predicate for that lawsuit upside down and inside out. And now, in my judgment, they are aggressively pursuing this revenue stream now, the sports betting revenue stream. Only the NCAA could get away with this kind of hypocrisy. And nobody's talking about it on those terms. So after the Murphy case, states all over the country start passing laws that permit sports betting. And as of today, I think there are maybe 30 states that permit a sports betting on team sports, professional and quote unquote amateur. So it is a booming market. And the NCAA, the conferences and the member institutions want in on that booming market. And as this market is maturing, there's some really interesting issues that are coming up, particularly with respect to who actually owns the data and what kind of data is being sold. And there's been some litigation around some of the basic questions in this data transfer. And in 1997, the NBA sued Motorola because Motorola had a pager where they, it transmitted live, real-time information from, on scoring and statistics from NBA games. And so basically you had people who in real time were at the venues putting the information into the system. And then that information was paged out to various third parties. The NBA then sued Motorola on the grounds that those live scores and statistics violated the NBA's copyrights. The NBA was saying that they had a protectable intellectual property interest in that data. That case went to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. It was a federal case. And the Second Circuit held that the underlying information in these games and the raw data was not copyrightable. It wasn't a protectable copyright interest. They said, yes, you have a protectable interest in the broadcast itself, but the facts relating to that broadcast and underlying that broadcast are not copyrightable, meaning that they are in the public domain. That legal issue has not been resolved. So 
there's some tension here between these data collection companies who could find ways to get it for free, essentially, and the organizations like the NBA or the NCAA or the conferences or the schools who, quote unquote, own that data. And it appears that as the market evolves, rather than having those issues decided in litigation, those two sides of the market are partnering. And there's enormous benefit on both sides. The quote-unquote owners of the data get paid crazy money to allow these companies like Genius Sports access to the data. And then the companies like Genius Sports get quote-unquote official, reliable data from a source that is trustworthy. And that has market value for these companies like Genius Sports because the credibility of the data is very, very important in the betting industry. So it's a win-win proposition in these relationships. And the companies that are in the data collection space, like Genius Sports, they are jockeying pretty aggressively to try to get exclusive deals with the quote-unquote owner of the data. That's gold if they can get it. And there are you know, a number of powerful companies that are in that business. And it, it looks, so far at least, that potential tension really has been resolved in, I guess, a way that, that works for both parties. But there's still some very, very important questions on the table as it relates to the athletes. What interest do the athletes have in that data? And something that's very important here, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more, I want to talk about this contract between the Mid-American Conference, the MAC, and Genius Sports that was just announced a couple of weeks ago at the beginning of March Madness. We don't know exactly what's in that contract, and the, the parties have been very coy about what the, the terms of that contract are and the extent to which Genius Sports is getting data that it's using for sports betting. But there was some suggestion that in that contract, some of the data that was being sold to Genius Sports was quote-unquote biometric data that you might get from a Fitbit or a Whoop that tells you things about the body, the functioning of the body of the person wearing it. That data is part of the package that the data collection companies desperately want. Just think about it. In the betting context, if you have access to the biometric data on the star players and there's some negative biometric data, that could be of enormous consequence to people who are putting money on the game and the people who are deciding what the line's going to be. And you can just imagine as the biometric technology advances, how valuable that, that could be in the sports betting context. And that raises some obvious privacy rights, bodily integrity rights, intellectual property ownership rights, and potentially basic civil and human rights. And if the leagues or the NCAA or the conferences or the institutions can force athletes to wear the biometric data collection devices because they have a contract with an outfit like Genius Sports, uh, then these athletes are being managed and treated like lab rats for the sole benefit of the gambling industry. That kind of coercion exists right now with the shoe and apparel market. And these companies come in, Nike comes in and, and pays a school a couple hundred million dollars, and they demand that the athletes wear that product during games and on official 
team activities. And the same dynamic could exist with devices that track biometric data. And the rumors are that this contract between Genius Sports and the Mac conference includes biometric data. And again, they're not, nobody's confirming or denying that officially. That is a huge, huge issue. And I, I believe that the professional sports leagues, like the NBA, for example, doesn't permit the sale of biometric data. And I don't know if that's the product of collective bargaining or whether the NBA thinks that that's a bad idea. The owners think it's a bad idea. But that's the kind of issue where the athletes need to be at the table to sit down and discuss their rights here. And, and I think they have substantial rights in data collection that goes beyond whether they make or miss a shot. So I guess real quickly, I just want to talk about a couple of articles that came out on this Mid-American Conference deal, this MAC Conference deal, both on March 9th, one in Sportico, one in ESPN. And from the headlines of these two articles, I don't think you're going to come away with the impression that these kinds of deals are a bad thing. And that ties into the theme I was talking about in the last few episodes, that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and their media megaphones who are benefiting from the broader ecosystem in college sports aren't looking at this really through a values lens. And there's no suggestion, in my judgment, in either of these articles, that we've got a huge problem at the values level and at the athletes' rights level. So the ESPN article is titled, Mac Reaches Stats Partnership. Data could be sold to sports betting companies. And it's pretty neutral. And it really doesn't say much on the values level. But it gets a quote from a guy named John Steinbrecher, who is the, I guess, the commissioner of the MAC. And the MAC is uniquely situated because the states in which its schools reside all have legalized sports wagering. And it's the only conference in the entire FBS that holds that distinction. And here's what Steinbrecher says about the, the data and, and the deal. He says, we're doing this to control our data, which ends up in the public domain anyway. We want to manage that asset. We want that asset to provide value back to our institutions so that we can support our student athletes, plain and simple. Yes, support our athletes, plain and simple. This has nothing to do with the student athletes. This is about just hauling in as much money as you can, and it's going to coaches and athletics administrators and facilities. It's not going to the student athletes. And then the author of this ESPN article, this is Heather Dinich, and she's a, a really good writer. She says, there's been a perception in college athletics that NCAA rules prohibit selling statistical data to a sports wagering entity. But the Mac contends that's not the case. And then they get another quote from Steinbrecher. We're of the opinion that the deal we're entering into is consistent with NCAA rules and regulations. And then it talks a little bit about the reach of genius sports. And I think what Steinbrecher is saying is that, yeah, we have all this propaganda from the NCAA, but NCAA rules don't really address this and don't specifically prohibit it. And that may be true. I haven't done a run through the Division I manual to see. But certainly, the NCAA has built an entire propaganda empire on its anti-sports wagering 
campaign. And then this other article in Sportico, let's see what this is titled. Genius Sports Ready for Maction with First NCAA Conference Data Deal. And Maction refers to this approach that the MAC Conference took with the scheduling of their football games. So in an effort to try to differentiate their product from the rest of the FBS, and I guess I should note, the Mid-American Conference is in the FBS, the football subdivision, the big football subdivision, but they are in the group of five conferences. They are a step below the power five. And so the group of five conferences, including the MAC, have been historically nipping at the heels of the power five and always, always looking to gain whatever competitive advantage in the market that they can to try to close the gap between the Power Five and the Group of Five. But what they did was they decided to play their games on Wednesdays. And that was a really interesting approach because it essentially gave them an exclusive standalone window in the college football schedule. They have used that to try to highlight their product and not really have it in the, all of the noise that, that goes on in scheduling on Saturdays during the football season. And they have a corner on the weekday regular season football market. And so they thought that they might be able to exploit that unique positioning in the college football marketplace through this deal with Genius. And I want to take all of this context and then bring us back to this editorial that was published today in Sportico. And as part of that, there's another piece that I need to, to get into to the record. It's not in chronological order. So I talked about that Mac deal. That was just a few weeks ago. But I guess over seven months ago, in early August of 20. 21. The Kaplan firm that was hired to conduct a gender equity review after the fiasco at the women's basketball tournament last year, they released their report on August 2nd. And it, there was a companion report that didn't get a lot of attention. And it's, it's a long document. Let me see what I've got here. It's probably close to 90 pages. And it is done by a firm called Dresser Sports Media Inc., and uh, Dress Dresser provides consulting services, and they do sports market analyses. And they did an analysis of the tournament, and that was kind of the in initial impetus for the report. But Dresser zoomed out a little bit and looked at women's college basketball, Division One basketball, as a product, and was looking at how it could position itself in the market and some potential revenue streams that it could exploit. And it was thinking outside the box and actually had some really interesting observations, I think. And this report, again, hasn't, hasn't gotten a lot of attention. It probably should have gotten more. And in its discussion of the true value or potential value of women's college basketball, they included a section let's see, 2.7, sports betting. And it's very brief, but I want to go through this here because it's important in how I believe the NCAA is quietly positioning itself to go in for the kill here on sports betting. So the Dresser reports, the NCAA has a strict policy on sports betting, which dates back to well before the recent U.S. Supreme Court decision, which legalized it. And that was the Murphy decision that I, I talked about earlier. Nonetheless, as legalized sports and mobile betting has spread state by state throughout the U.S., the Women's Basketball Championship represents a property with additional growth 
potential among bettors and of interest to those marketers looking to reach bettors and prospective bettors, just like Genius Sports. He didn't say that. That's my add-on, just like uh, Genius Sports. We recognize the rationale for the NCAA's historic position on gambling and take no position on that here. I just love that. We take no position on that here. We just believe we would be remiss not to raise the issue in the context of a broad review of the media strategy. To the extent that the NCAA wishes to look at new opportunities to generate revenue as the industry evolves, this could be another possibility to consider. The men's basketball championship is one of the country's two most wagered on sporting events, along with the Super Bowl. The total amount bet in 2021 for the men's basketball championship, that's March Madness, is estimated at $1 billion. Events like the men's and women's basketball championships benefit from having several games to wager on, some occurring simultaneously. The conventional wisdom is that the more people who bet on a sporting event, the more will watch and potentially watch longer. I want to stop right there. That's going to tie into a theme that was brought into this op-ed that I'm going to go through here in a minute. And that is so important because what they're saying is if you can just get a hook into people, if you can get them to be betters, then you can transform them into fans. And the conventional wisdom is that the more people who bet on a sporting event, the more will watch. So viewership and fan, the growth of the fan base and fan loyalty are all tied to sports betting. That's how the industry sees this. And that is so, so important because it goes, this goes beyond just the sale of data. This goes to trying to expand the fan base. So the report goes on. Although the NCAA forbids betting advertisements in its championship event telecasts, legal betting platform companies like DraftKings, FanFuel, Caesars, MGM, and Bally's all seek to reach the NCAA championships viewing audience and would favor purchasing any available adjacent commercial advertising inventory on the broadcast media right holders, TV, and digital properties. This category provides additional potential upside to future broadcast revenues should the NCAA permit it in the future. And then they say, today, the most valuable sports rights holders derive considerable value from the growth of sports betting. There is heightened competitive bidding from sports data companies such as Sports Radar, Genius Sports, Stats Perform, and IMG Arena for exclusive and non-exclusive rights to distribute official league data, official league data, that's important, and advanced real-time data and other services to media companies, legalized betting establishments, and others. And then they talk about a, a contract between Genius Sports and the NFL that's worth $120 million annually. I think the total contract's worth over a billion dollars. But what's interesting about the way that the Dresser Report talks about sports betting is that they don't try to sugarcoated. And they just say straight up, this is about betting. This is about trying to increase the fan base. And if we can get people to bet on sports, then we can convert them into fans. That's the logic behind the growth of sports betting in college sports. So let me transition now to this op-ed that appeared today. And again, the title of it is The New Era of March Madness. 
back and better than ever. It is written by David Levy, who is the chairman of Genius Sports. He talks a little bit about his background, but he's no stranger to March Madness because he's the former president of Turner, which is a joint holder of the media broadcast rights along with CBS. So this is just uh, part of the incest in the world of big time college sports. And so you go from Turner to Genius Sports and then you're part of the normalization process and all of a sudden sports betting's the greatest thing since sliced bread. That's where we're headed. There's no question about it. And I just want to point out the context is so important. We're only talking here about March Madness. And that's what Levy is focusing on. And the reason that's so important is that the basketball revenue and the overall pie of big-time college sports pales in comparison to big-time football. Why are we talking about it during March Madness? Because the NCAA's sole source of revenue is the March Madness contract with Turner and CBS. And this is about finding new ways to squeeze value out of that product, the very product that the NCAA started marketing the hell out of right after the Board of Regents decision in 1984 when it lost its football empire and had to turn to men's basketball to replace that revenue. So the NCAA will do anything in its power to squeeze more money out of that March Madness contract or to create additional revenue streams. And that's why we're hearing about this during March Madness. And and in that episode, a few episodes ago, when I was talking about all these things that were coming together and how it's never a coincidence when issues pop up at the same time, you have to look for the connections. And the connection on this sports betting issue and how it started coming into the discussion in early March, just at the beginning of March Madness, is that this March Madness tournament and op-ed articles just like this are part of the normalization process. And what better time to normalize sports betting in college basketball than during the March Madness tournament when uh, a bunch of people are watching the games solely because they are participating in illegal betting (laughs) through these office pools. And this falls into the category of you just can't make this stuff up. But let's go to what Mr. Levy has to say here. He talks about just how horrible it was that we didn't have um, March Madness in 2020 and then a not-so-great experience last year. And then he jumps in. This March, joyfully, we can all say that March Madness, as we know it, is not just back, but is bigger and better than ever before. And I feel that same excitement of reinvention now working with Genius Sports that I did in 2011. So he left Turner and and he started Genius Sports and he's excited because he gets that reinvention kind of feeling right now. At Genius Sports, we are again working with our partners, Turner, CBS, the NCAA, and now ESPN on the women's side to expand and revolutionize fan engagement on whatever device consumers choose. So I'm going to stop right there. There's a lot in that paragraph. First of all, he's talking about change, reinvention. We need to think about this in a new way. And he's a partner 
with Turner, CBS, NCAA, and ESPN. So everybody's on the same page here. And he notes that ESPN is on the women's side. ESPN doesn't have the contract for March Madness, but it does have the contract for the women's tournament. And it's not as valuable as it should be. But And that was one of the things that Dresser pointed out. But this is part of the normalization process. We're all in this together, and we all need to see this in the same way. And this is an opportunity going forward. Expand and revolutionize fan engagement. But notably, there's no discussion at this point about sports betting. And then Levy says, taking a step back when Genius Sports first embarked on our 10-year agreement with the NCAA in 2018, engagement in women's sports, and for that matter, college sports outside of football and men's basketball, needed more attention, focus, and investment. Our first step was NCAA Live Stats, which we knew was a vital part of the growth of engagement for content viewing on all platforms. So it's interesting. So we're invoking women's sports, engagement in women's sports. And that's, I think, echoing what came out in that Dresser report. And that is an immunity shield because you can't question the NCAA's commitment to gender equity. And people just get all bowed up about that. But in this propaganda campaign to normalize sports betting, if you say that it's a good thing because it can enhance opportunities for women's sports and create revenue streams for women's sports, and you wrap yourself in the new NCAA gender equity logo, then everything is okay. Sports betting is fine and dandy. That's the implication here. He goes on, live stats and in-game live data capture and distribution tool has been rolled out across all three divisions of sports that didn't normally get that much attention on the digital side. Now we're appealing to the Olympic sports athletes men's and women's volleyball, soccer, and ice hockey. It created the first reliable official data feed for fans, coaches, teams, and conferences while acting as a crucial springboard for our recent partnership with the Mid-American Conference. It's really brilliant the way this article is put together because Levy is pressing all the buttons. He's talking about a whole new frontier and this is going to be great for women's sports. This is going to be great for the quote-unquote Olympic sports. And it provides a crucial springboard for our recent partnership with the Mid-American Conference. But we don't know what's in that contract. There is uh, credible evidence that that contract includes information that's going to be used for sports betting, including biometric data. We don't hear anything about that. We're not talking about betting yet. So he goes on. Genius believes live stats has been a key building block for the fan experience, similar to the way that Turner and CBS solved their internal challenges by always focusing on what benefited the consumer versus what benefited their networks. I didn't know there was a, a difference between what consumers want and what the networks provide. Anyway, he goes on. And now we're coming in for the kill. This is This paragraph brings it all right home. And Levy says, back when I was running Turner, we were able to convince the Time Warner board to do a long-term deal with the NCAA tournament because we recognized and understood that everyone fills out brackets and that was never going to change. This creates a unique level of fan engagement. If you fill out a bracket, you're going to watch in a similar fashion Genius also understood that filling out brackets creates office pools and game-by-game -game betting, which is central to our business model. Based on that, we constructed a 10-year relationship with the NCAA. That's just breathtaking. And at least Levy just comes out and says it here. So what he's saying, well, there's a lot here, but he's saying, first of all, that 
This is about sports betting. And if we can get people hooked on the betting, then we can transform them into fans and consumers. And they're going to watch. This is like the uh, big tobacco analogy. Get them addicted and then everybody's going to be happy. So let's get these people in, uh, get them on board with sports gambling. This is big gambling. So we have a big amateurism and they're in bed with big gambling now. That's what this comes down to. And he says that game by game betting and all, all of the sports betting on college sports is central to their business model. And that was the reason that we constructed a 10-year relationship with the NCAA. This beautifully captures the normalization process because in 2018, that contract that the NCAA signed with Genius Sports was a facial violation of the NCAA's anti-gambling policy. But if Levy's correct that the motivation on the part of Genius was to have a long-term relationship as this issue evolved, that puts that contract in a whole new light, I think. And I believe that's what Levy is suggesting here. Based on that, and that being that betting is central to their business model, we constructed a 10-year relationship with the NCAA. And I just think it's so important to point out that this is in the context of the Division I men's basketball tournament. And this isn't occurring in the Power 5 football context. Power 5 football is really not an NCAA product. The, the conferences and teams exist under the NCAA umbrella, but that product operates completely outside of the NCAA. And I think that the big-time powerful football interests through the CFP, for example, which is a limited liability company not affiliated with the NCAA. But if the CFP decided to do a sports betting deals, I don't think the NCAA could or would say anything, particularly not now that the Power Five football interests have completed their hostile takeover of NCAA governance. But this is the NCAA men's basketball tournament. The NCAA owns the product. And I think it's also important to point out that the NCAA has an absolute monopoly over postseason championship tournaments in college basketball. And a lot of people think that the NIT, the National Invitational Tournament, is operated independent of the NCAA, and that's simply not true. There was a time when the NIT was as prestigious as the NCAA tournament. That was particularly true when the NCAA did not have at-large bids. You had to win your conference tournament, or however the conference determined the champion, in order to go to the NCAA tournament, which meant that there were some phenomenal teams that were excluded from the NCAA tournament. And in many years, I think observers thought that the NIT tournament had a stronger field than the NCAA tournament. And the NCAA, after it lost control of its football empire in 1984 because of Board of Regents, and as it was aggressively looking to men's basketball and the men's basketball tournament as a replacement revenue source, it aggressively acquired market share in postseason basketball, and it essentially put the NIT out of business. And the NIT sued the NCAA under antitrust laws in the early 2000s, I believe it was. And they claimed that the NCAA was compelling teams to accept an invitation to the NCAA tournament and that the NCAA's rapid expansion of the tournament field to 60 Four sixty-five was a purposeful tactic to reduce the number and quality of teams that would then 
be eligible for the NIT. And in 2005, on the eve of trial in that antitrust suit, the case settled. And in that settlement, the NCAA purchased the NIT for, I think, $55 million, I believe it was. Now the NCAA owns the NIT, and the NIT has become a shadow of its former self. And that tournament was built around New York City, and the games were played in Madison Square Garden, and that alone added value to the tournament. And then over time, the NIT stopped playing the earlier rounds in Madison Square Garden and was only playing the semifinals and the finals in Madison Square Garden. So you have had really the NIT tournament under the NCAA's ownership being simply uh, winnowed down to next to nothing. And I wouldn't be surprised if the NIT ceases to exist altogether. But that's how the NCAA operates. And then another thing I, I want to say about the NCAA's involvement in this marketplace, and that is uh, in this new constitution that was ratified in January, the duties of the association and the obligations of the association and the rights of the association and also the NCAA president are enumerated in this new constitution in a way that was not done in the old constitution. So the association under this new constitution shall manage the association's intellectual property and maintain historical and statistical records of the association. So those statistics and that historical data is the property of the association. And then the NCAA president has the authority to enter into, administer, and enforce all association contracts, including Board of Governors approved contracts concerning media rights and revenue producing agreements and initiatives of the Board of Governors and divisional leadership bodies. So what does that mean? It means as to those areas in which the NCAA as an association has the right to contract, and that does not include big time football, Power 5 football because of Board of Regents, but in the other areas, specifically including the men's basketball tournament, March Madness, the NCAA owns all of that in intellectual property, and the NCAA president has the authority to sell that property, essentially. And what's important about those two things in this new constitution is that in the old NCAA Division I manual, those authorities were buried in the back of that manual, the very back under the executive regulations. In this new constitution, they have been brought forward as a constitutional mandate. And that tells me that in this constitutional makeover, the NCAA wanted to make it clear, crystal clear, and put it in a place of prominence in its most essential principles in this constitution, that it and it alone can sell the NCAA intellectual property, and it would include all of this data that it's selling to Genius Sports Now and additional data that it may sell in the future. And of course, that then also means that Mark Emmert and the boys in the national office and these lavishly overpaid NCAA executives are the ones who are going to decide how that asset, that intellectual property, is managed going forward. And if they can turn a buck on it, you bet your bottom dollar that's exactly what they're going to do. And it's going straight into the NCAA coffers. 
And the big-time powerful football interests that are essentially running the NCAA right now could not care less because they don't really give a damn about the NCAA's own revenue because it is a pittance compared to what the schools are making independent of the NCAA in big-time Power 5 football. And I want to talk just a minute about where the NCAA stands now at the values level. How is it articulating its values with respect to betting on college sports. And boy, this is just an interesting transition here. So this was on the NCAA propaganda website. And it comes, let's see, from a release dated January 27th, 2022. It's titled NCAA, an epic risk management announce gambling harm education program. So I guess this company, Epic, does risk management on some issues, including, I guess, gambling. And it says, as part of the NCAA's long-standing commitment to protect student-athlete well-being and the integrity of college athletics, the association is working with Epic Risk Management to provide a comprehensive gambling harm and student-athlete protection educational program for its members. The program will be made available to all NCAA campuses and conferences later this year with a blend of delivery options, including in-person education workshops and seminars, pre-recorded sessions, and online on-demand virtual resources. Educational materials will be strategically focused to educate student-athletes, coaches, and administrators, game officials, healthcare, and support personnel. And now we get a quote from Stan Wilcox, the NCAA Executive Vice President of Regulatory Affairs. And Mr. Wilcox says, this program is the latest action by the national office as the membership adapts to increased legalized sports wagering. The NCAA continually assesses the evolving sports wagering landscape, and we are committed to providing tools, resources, and educational initiatives for our schools and conferences. And they're pumping up this company, Epic Risk Management, and you get a quote from the CEO. Then it says, gambling harm education remains a key focus of the NCAA. The national office and representatives from member schools continuously work together to determine best practices for addressing the sports wagering landscape. The association will continue to enhance and expand its offering of resources and initiatives to ensure the protection of student-athlete well-being and the integrity of college athletics. That is priceless. That is just priceless. So we have just thrown our values out the window or under the bus, and now we are merely adapting to the increased legalized sports wagering environment. So the NCAA is offering harm reduction strategies for athletes so that they can stay on the clear side of all the temptations of sports gambling. And the NCAA is doing that to cover its tracks here and make it look like they give a damn about the potential harms of sports gambling when they will likely be selling the athlete's data, perhaps including very private and sensitive biometrics data, to the highest bidder so that those sports data collection companies can then turn around and sell it to the gambling industry so that it, it can create more precise betting lines. And we're going to do it in the name of gender equity and our commitment to Olympic sports. I just don't even know how you respond to this kind of dishonesty 
and hypocrisy. This isn't a situation of the NCAA just coming around to the realities of the 21st century. They sure as hell aren't doing that when it comes to their compensation limits on revenue-producing athletes. So you can't make that argument that this is just a reality of the new marketplace and sports betting has been normalized because after this 2018 Supreme Court decision, you have states that have legalized it. No, if you're a values-based organization and you have spent the last 70 years building your value system through an anti-gambling campaign, a militant and absolute anti-gambling campaign, you just can't do a U-turn on that. You just can't do it. But the NCAA is doing it because it can't help itself. It is a broken, dishonest, avaricious, and corrupt enterprise. And they have spent decades talking about bad actors. And these agents are bad actors. And these athletes who are standing up for their rights and telling the NCAA that they need to get paid some money, they're bad actors. And these gambling influences, they're bad actors. And now all of a sudden, the NCAA is in bed with big gambling and they are trying to put a happy face on it. The way that they do that is through this normalization process that includes these public megaphones, these massive public megaphones like ESPN, like Sportico, like CBS and Turner. These people have the biggest megaphones on the planet, and they are normalizing gambling on college sports in real time during this March Madness tournament. And nobody's talking about it on those terms. And, and I just close this out with an undeniable truth, and that is that there is a racial component to all of this exploitation. And I don't think we're going to have a bunch of betting on ice hockey and a volleyball or water polo. The sports betting market's going to revolve around the most popular sports, and that's going to be big-time Power 5 football and big-time Power 5 men's basketball. And as I have noted before, Division I men's basketball has the highest concentration of African-American athletes of any sport in any division. And I ran some quick numbers on the rosters for the teams that made the Sweet 16 and the high-value, high-quality, high-minute players. And among those players, 84% of them are African-American. That group of athletes provides nearly all of the value in the March Madness tournament. Yet, when these people talk about the benefits of sports gambling, college sports gambling, they point to how it's going to help the student athletes. And when they say student athletes, they mean female athletes and Olympic sport athletes. And those two demographic groups in the broader college sports mosaic are overwhelmingly white. And we're back to Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model, and we exploit the ever-living hell out of football and men's basketball, and then take that money and send it down to white beneficiaries, and everything is A-OK. -okay. This isn't gambling. This is simply furthering the nonprofit mission of these institutions, and it has an educational purpose. And the final analysis, we're not gambling. We're just 
exploiting a revenue stream that can provide opportunities for female athletes and Olympic sports athletes. And as with the current revenue streams, how is this new money going to be spent? Is it really going to be spent on things that have a direct and positive impact on student athletes more broadly and more particularly the athletes who actually generate the revenue? I don't think so. It's going to go into the pockets of the conference commissioners, the athletics directors, the athletics administrators, the high-profile coaches, and on facilities that are nothing more than bling in the recruiting game. Those are the inducements, the legal inducements in this dysfunctional structure. And, you know, we're talking about these name, image, and likeness deals being used as improper inducements. Well, the improper inducements are these ridiculous facilities that are as much about bringing in the next wave of recruits as they are enhancing the experience for the existing student athletes. And I'm putting student athletes in air quotes. And of course, and importantly, you have an entirely new class of corporate interests that are running in to exploit the athletic talent ability and labor of revenue producing athletes. And this time it's not shoe companies or broadcast media outlets or sports quote unquote journalism outlets. It is big gambling. So the NCAA has opened the door to one of the dirtiest businesses in the history of the United States of America. And it is doing it under the banner of gender equity and Olympic sport development. So I'll be paying attention to this issue as we move forward. And I I guess I'll leave it at that. So I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.